Hi, my name's Grant Fishbook, and I am honored to be the lead teaching pastor here at Christ the King Church in Bellingham, Washington. Thank you so much for choosing to access this online content today. We really hope you'll enjoy this message. One of our values here at Christ the King is biblical face-to-face -face community. And so while we are so excited that you joined us today online, I really want to encourage you. Make sure that this is never a replacement for face-to-face -face biblical community. Your story matters, you matter, and we want to see you get connected in a local church. Now, if you're here in our area, we would love to have you join us at any one of our five campuses. But if you find yourself outside of the Bellingham area, we really want you to get connected into a local church. So we hope and pray that that happens for you very, very soon. the life we see, the beauty in the trees, the canopy, the branches, the leaves, the majesty of it all. It all started in the dirt, invisible forgotten in dark places, buried. Well, good morning, everybody. To those of you that have successfully navigated spring break, God bless you, and may you bless your children as they go back to school where they belong, all right? <laughs> If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. A few months ago, Laurel and I had an amazing experience with some members of our Christ the King team. We accepted a dinner invitation to a restaurant in Vancouver called The Dark Table. It is a, uh, a, a visually challenging environment. From the second you walk into the restaurant, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. It's dinner in the dark. And without any visual cues whatsoever, everything about the dinner experience completely changes. Things you take for granted, like aim, <laughs> change for you. You'd be amazed how difficult it is to move a fork to your mouth when you can't see anything in the room. Equilibrium is challenged. I found myself gripping the sides of our table all the way through dinner because I just didn't know exactly which end was up. It was unbelievably challenging. People told me that the flavor of the food would be unbelievably enhanced. I have no idea. I was just spending all of my time trying to figure out how am I going to get this stuff on this plate into my mouth. Uh, because of Laurel's visual disability, she became our expert for the evening. She helped orient us as to how you actually go about eating when you can't see uh, at all, unbelievably. Uh, the one thing that she was disappointed in is the fact that she wanted us to have to take on the challenge of cutting our own meat without being able to see it. You should try that sometime. <laughs> she was deeply disappointed when they brought our meat to us completely pre-cut and just made it very, very challenging. All I know is this, after dining in the dark, fingers are a beautiful thing when you cannot see your fork. Okay, that's how it works. The one thing that stood out to me about dinner was how uh, the communication changed around the table. 
We paid way more attention to who was speaking and how they were speaking and how you needed to, to, to wind your way through the conversations when you actually couldn't see the people who were talking. Well, this weekend, I'd like to invite you to a dinner party. A different kind of dinner party than you've ever been to. I'd like to invite you to actually walk up to the table and meet the guests and take a seat and participate. You're only going to be able to walk into the dinner party in your mind. So if you need to go dark and close your eyes at any time so you can picture what is happening, I would invite you to do that. The dinner takes place in a little tiny town called Bethany. If you ever travel with me to Israel, and I hope all of you do, it's about a, a day's walk just actually about a 20-minute drive southeast of Jerusalem. I want you to enter into this beautiful ancient town. The house is simple. The, the mud walls are made out of stucco. There are low ceilings. And as you dip your head underneath of the archway into this home, I want you to smell falafel and hummus and grilled meat. I want you to go there with me to a dinner party and a table for five. The Bible says this in John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. On account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and were believing in him. Now, before you close the book, can you just stay at the table for just a moment? It's a table for five. And those of you who may be familiar with Scripture, have, you, you're realizing we have met these people before. And if you're not familiar, that's okay. Let me give you the prequel, okay? Let's go back in the story. Days before, Jesus shows up at the house of two sisters and one brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary's the devoted one. She sits at the feet of Jesus, just soaking in his presence. Martha is the busy one. She's just busy trying to prepare the meal. She complains to Jesus, Jesus, why don't you tell my sister to actually help me out in the kitchen? And Jesus flips everything on its head when he makes a point and says to Martha, 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 you need to slow down. Some things can actually wait you need to relax. You're worried about many things, all kinds of details, but just relax. Mary has actually chosen a better way. And the fact that Jesus highlights this person who's sitting at the feet of Jesus will forever tick off the busy people in the room who just want to get things done. Jesus leaves that scenario. He leaves his friends behind and just a little while later, word comes to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. And it's strange because instead of immediately going to his friend, Jesus stalls. 
It's almost like he's distracted, like he's up to something. Just so you know, Jesus is always up to something, always. Word comes again, Jesus, you're too late. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus responds, no problem. Let's go wake him up again. Like, uh, excuse me, Jesus, we said dead, not sleeping. And Jesus says the Aramaic equivalent of, whatever, let's go back to Bethany. <laughs> Jesus arrives, and Mary and Martha are both grieving and blaming. Jesus, if you would have been here, the story wouldn't have gone that way. Jesus, if you would have showed up when we needed you to, the story wouldn't have gone that way. If you've ever questioned God's presence, you get this. When we're in crisis and it appears like God is nowhere in sight, you have been here. You understand this. If you've ever said, God, if you would have healed him, my brother wouldn't have died. If you've ever said, Jesus, if you would have showed up, my marriage would still be intact. If you have ever come to God and said, God, if you would have done what I needed you to, my hope would still be alive today. If you've ever been there, you feel this. And I'm here to remind you, when it comes to God, silence is not absence. God is always there. Even when we don't get what we want, God is always there. And we have to choose to trust or not to trust. Story goes on. Jesus responds. Let's just go wake him up. It looks like he's dead, like not going to do any good. Jesus says, take me to him. And to the two broken-hearted sisters, take him. Get the picture in your mind, okay? The funeral is done. There's a period at the end of the sentence. Death is final. It's over. Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus gets to the cemetery. The caves where they would place the bodies have been stacked with rocks in front. And, and he stands in the middle of the cemetery and he makes this unbelievably bold statement. Hey, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes out alive. Apparently, Jesus does dead differently than everybody else on the face of the planet. That's all in the prequel. And now we come to dinner, right? We come to the dinner. We've met these people before. Let me introduce the dinner guests to you one more time in a different situation. First of all, there's Mary. And, and the one thing they all have in common, by the way, is they're all buried. They're all buried. Mary's buried in responsibility and honor. Just for clarity, a couple of weeks ago, I taught about a scenario where a woman, a sinful woman, comes to Jesus with an alabaster jar of perfume and she pours it out and she wipes his feet with her hair and it's scandalous and intimate. This is a completely different scenario. Similar circumstances, but a completely different scenario. Mary comes to the table and, and, and then she's overcome with responsibility and honor and she worships Jesus and Jesus lets her. Just so you know, you experienced exactly the same thing this morning. You came to the table of God to worship and he let you. He drew you close. He welcomed your sacrifice. And to him, it was absolutely beautiful. You know, sometimes we can be completely buried in important life details. Sometimes we're buried in all of the right things. And Mary right now is buried in responsibility and honor. And we experience this. We honor God and there's a price, there's a weight, there's a cost. But it also is a place where when we are pressed down into it, we have the opportunity to grow. Mary, she's buried in everything that's good. 
Then there's Martha. Martha's buried in busyness and service. You know, I, I don't know if Martha didn't learn her lesson the first time around. I mean, when Jesus said for the first time, Martha, Martha, I don't know if she got it or not. She's still busy and she's still serving. So we know she's still in process. So if you're here today and you just say, I'm in process, you're in great company. You know, I don't know about you. I rarely learn lessons from God the first time through. Anybody else with me? I mean, sometimes it's like over and over and over again. Finally, Jesus has to take out the two by four and take me right here in the middle of my thick skull before I actually get a clue. I don't know if that's Mary, if that's Martha's situation, but I know this: she's still busy. And busy can be okay as long as you got the right focus. But if you're busy for the wrong reason, it just doesn't go very well. So you've heard me say it before. I'm going to say it again because I think we need to get this through all of our thick skulls. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. That's how it works. She's busy, but now she seems to be serving with a different focus. You know, when we run at a fast pace with the cross hairs of the cross of Jesus right in front of us, and we use good wisdom when it comes to pace, that, and, and we understand that the Jesus way is a marathon, not a sprint, then I believe there is divine permission not to be busy but to serve. I got to ask the question, are some of you just simply too busy? Are you actually pulling dirt in on top of you because you just haven't developed the spiritual discipline of saying no? You do know it's okay to say no, right? I want to encourage you as we head towards Easter week, give yourself a gift and quit something. Just quit something. Never quit serving, but feel free to quit anything that is going to distract you and take your eyes off of Jesus we gave you the opportunity earlier in the service to, to actually sign up and become a part of the team. I don't want to do Easter alone. Andy doesn't want to do Easter alone. None of us want to do Easter alone. We'd like to invite you to be a part of the team that's going to set a table and invite, hopefully, prayerfully, hundreds of your friends and family to have an encounter with the risen and resurrected Christ. The reason we open that door is not so you can add one more thing to your Easter calendar. It's so that you can come and serve Jesus on the most important weekend of his existence. We got Mary, we got Martha, and then we got Lazarus. He was actually buried in death. I mean, can you imagine the perspective of Lazarus at a dinner party like this? I thought I'd had my last meal with these people. I thought I had my last laugh with these people. I thought I had my last connection and hug with these people, but here we are. Again, I made a statement a few weeks ago in one of our messages with a lot of passion a few weeks back. This is what I said. I said, if you're not dead, God's not done. And a whole bunch of you said, amen. And then on my drive home, I thought to myself, if Lazarus would have been in the room, I think he would have said, uh, excuse me, I actually was dead and God still wasn't done. So I'd like to amend that to be a little bit more biblical, okay? Stricken from the record, if you're not dead, God's not done. And let's replace it with this. It's not done until God says it's done. Somebody say amen to that, all right? You know, the reality is like some of you feel like you're dying. The weight of life, it's, it's, just, it's just crushing you. That's why we sang earlier in the crushing, in the pressing, you're making, God is making 
new wine. And if some of you are feeling that pressure and you're tempted to allow it to, to press you away from God, I'm going to encourage you with a simple question that we're going to talk about all, all series long. What if you're planted, not buried? What if instead of feeling like you're entombed and crushed and being buried alive, what if instead you had a different perspective and said, if God is in it, what if I'm planted, not buried? What if something is stirring underneath of the surface that nobody can even see? What if new life, new growth, new passion is actually going to spring to life because something is going to fall in the ground and die? What, what, what if you actually saw that pressure as a way of being pushed deeper and deeper and deeper into God's beautiful presence? Something to think about for the next couple of weeks. Let's move on. At every single dinner party, there's always somebody who talks too much. There's always somebody who eats too much. There's always somebody who's socially awkward. And so we've got Martha, we've got Mary, we've got Lazarus, and now here comes Judas of all people. Martha takes this beautiful perfume, pours it out on the feet of Jesus, washes his feet with her hair, which was both intimate and scandalous. And then Judas has to drop a bomb in the middle of the dinner party. Like, why did she do that? I mean, we could have sold that off so I could take my cut. I mean, <clears throat> looked after the poor. Judas is buried, all right. He's buried in greed. He's buried in theft. He's buried in judgment. And I love the response of Jesus in the face of all of this, leave her alone. Leave my daughter alone. She's doing something beautiful here. How dare you speak against this beautiful act of sacrifice? The thing that's difficult to ignore when it comes to Judas is that he's burying himself. You know, the reality is some of you, some of us, we're buried in our own poor choices. We're buried in our own greed. We're buried in our own selfishness. We're buried in our own hypocrisy. We're buried in our own judgment. And that can be absolutely depressing until you realize even those of us who are burying ourselves in our own sin have an invitation to come to dinner. Jesus still invites you to dinner. And it's going to get a little bit awkward because he, he not only says, leave her alone, but then he says she was actually going to save this perfume for my burial. Apparently, Jesus doesn't know much about dinner etiquette because you're not supposed to talk about dying at the dinner table, right? Everybody knows that. But Jesus keeps doing it. In fact, if you read the New Testament, the Gospels over and over again, Jesus' own disciples keep coming to him going like, Jesus, could you like lay off the dying talk? It's really hard to rally people to the movement when you keep talking about the fact you're going to die at some point. Like, just knock it off. But Jesus keeps pressing in. And he's pressing in here. He goes, this is what is going to happen to me. Just, you don't know it yet. Six days from now. Six days. So we find Jesus buried in preparation. We find him buried in his mission. He's tipping his hand. He's actually telling them, my goal is a grave. This verse is coming next week. Unless a seed falls in the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. 
But if it falls into the ground and dies, it multiplies over and over and over and over again. Jesus knew the cross was in his sight line. He knew the end game. He knew the mission. And he's moving with purpose in that direction. But before he gets there, he throws a dinner party. Table for five. And if you show up, it's a table for six. A couple of thoughts. I love the fact that Jesus here will have dinner with anybody. Thank God. That just gives me hope. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, wants to have dinner with the messy, the misinformed, the hurting and the healthy, the broken and the benign, the lauded and the lazy, the intellectual and the introverted, the rowdy and the religious. <laughs> He's just like, I, I'm hosting dinner, you can come. And here around this table, you find the devoted and the busy, the formerly dead, the betrayer, and every single one of them has an equal invitation. Just show up and see what happens. Let me say it another way. Jesus actually made space for the devoted, the betrayer, the in process, and the restored, which begs me to ask a question of you. Who are you making space for this Easter? Is it going to be typical? Me, mine, and ours. That's who gets to come to this table. Or is it going to be different this year? I have a question for the followers of Christ. Before you choose your guest list, have you consulted with the King of Kings as to who he wants to be at your table or who he wants to have sit beside you? Have you even paused to think that maybe he has something to say? I'm going to warn you something. <laughs> the guest list of Jesus is gloriously messy. If you don't believe me, look around. <laughs> but let's take a moment. Could you do me a favor and pull out a simple piece of paper that was inside of your program today? There should have been an invitation in there. I'm just going to ask you to hold it in your hand. I know that it's just simply a piece of paper, but the reality is it's actually something sacred if we use it right. I'm not going to ask you, who are you inviting to Easter? I'm going to ask you, who does Jesus want you to invite? Because he's setting a table, more than a table for five. He has spaces open. My question is, are we going to be wise enough, bold enough, courageous enough to pray and say, God, who do you want me to make space for this Easter? And then, God, will you give me the courage to actually go and speak. I did the research again this year. Barna does it almost every single year. They do a poll with about a thousand people and they ask the question, would you go to Easter if someone invited you? 87% of people said yes. I'd go if somebody would just invite me. I don't want to go alone, but if somebody would invite me, I would seriously entertain the idea on Easter weekend. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop and we're going to pray. I'd like you to actually have a conversation with Jesus and say, Jesus, who do you want me to make space for? And then to just open up your heart and open up your mind and allow him to put faces and names into your heart and your mind. I'll pick it up from there and pray for courage for all of us to actually take a step forward in faith believing Let's find out in our own hearts who Jesus wants to invite to his table this weekend. Would you pray with me? Let's pray silently together and ask God 
who's on his guest list this year. Father God, I thank you that into the relational framework, into the community, to the family of believers in Whatcom County, now you have just been dropping faces and names, employees, acquaintances, family members, people on the street, that person who rides the bus across from us, the person who sits to our left in the calculus class at Western God, if they are on your guest list, would you, have, would you have us summon the courage to invite them to come? God, the response actually doesn't matter. It, it has everything to do with our obedience. And so, God, may you use these small pieces of paper and transform them into something sacred. God, we will make space for everyone that you want to be here. And God, thank you that you want to partner with us so, Lord Jesus, not those of our choosing, but those of your choosing. May we be bold and may we be faithful in offering the invitation. In Jesus' name we prayed. Amen. Amen. How many of you had a face drop into your mind and your first response was, not them? <laughs> Aren't you glad Jesus didn't think of you that way? Not him, not her. Instead, Jesus was always, yes, him, yes, her. Jesus was intentional in his invitation, and it was because of his mission. He had plans, I'm going to set the table. I'm going to tell them ahead of time that I'm going to be buried for them. I'm intentional, this is the mission, and now he invites us to participate. Let's leave the table for a moment. And make a move into, into the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Easter Sunday morning, we're going to talk about this particular passage. And I want to tip my hand to it, just like Jesus tipped his hand to the fact that he would be buried. The Apostle Paul, he's preaching. He's bringing the heat. He is laying it down. He's bringing it home, laying it all on the field. And then he says these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, for what I received... So for what I re received, what changed my life, what transformed me from a murderer into a missionary, what completely shifted my, my whole being, what took my career path and moved me in a completely different direction, for what I received, I passed on to you. It's supposed to be given away. How can we call ourselves the loving people of God if we never share with anyone the cure for the common sin? I mean, we're supposed to be motivated and moving. So for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the main course. This is the main course, the appetizer, the dessert, and the drinks all wrapped up into one. This is the most important thing that could possibly be served to us. And now it's laid up on the table. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sin. That's the gospel in a nutshell. 
That Christ would take our account, everything that we've ever done wrong, put it on his sinless body, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that it could be wiped clean once and for all, that Christ died for our sin according to the scriptures. All through the Old Testament, it keeps saying he would be crushed for our iniquities. He will be bruised. It's our transgression that are going to put him on the cross. And Jesus is fulfilling every single one of these statements that he would pay the price for our sin, that he would take on death, that he would sacrifice himself for us. And I'm reading this this week. I've read this so many times before, and then something just, bam, hits me in the heart. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sin according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and I went right over top of it. I went right over top of it. All of the English teachers in the room are going to smile. What you taught us back in first, second, and third grade is finally going to, it's finally going to land and mean something big time for us. That he was buried, comma, It's not a period. It's a comma. I've been a pastor for 30 years. I've done more funerals than I care to remember. I did one yesterday morning before I came to church and tried to shift gears into this moment when we could come together. But this one thing I know, when you do a graveside service, after it is finished, after the person has been buried, there's a period at the end of the sentence. Buried feels like the end of the road. It's finished. It's done. You have to say goodbye. But I want to point something out to you. It's so small, it, you may have missed it. Apparently, when Jesus does buried, it's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. I'm so thankful for this little grammatical piece that just reminded me that's not the end of the story because apparently buried isn't final when your name is Jesus. It's not a period, it's a comma. The best part of the story is still coming. That's why we stop on Good Friday. Good Friday pivots on that comma that he was buried and it's heartbreaking. But then the rest of the story shows up on Easter weekend that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the fulfillment of everything. It means this. You need some good news in the midst of a world that's just blowing up right now? Here's some good news. Jesus was dead and not dead anymore. He was buried. He's not buried anymore. Death couldn't hold him. The veil tore before him. He silenced the bow of sin and the grave in everything we know about Jesus. I'm so thankful it's a comma, not a period. So let me summarize everything. At a dinner party, Jesus told his friends he was going to change a period after buried into a comma. He's whispering, I'm not done. I know you're all freaked out. I'm not done. Which leaves me with one last question. Where in your life have you placed a period where God would put a comma? This marriage is over. Period. This dream is dead. Period. This illness can't be beaten. Period. This business is bankrupt, period. My son isn't ever coming home, period. 
This addiction's never going to go away. Period. My daughter's gone forever. Period. I've got no hope. Period. My dad's never going to give up drinking. Period. My mom's never going to give her heart to Jesus. Period. I can't change. Period. Those neighbors, they're never coming to Easter. Period. I didn't make up my list. This was my week. There are families in this church, individuals in this church, who are dealing with all of this right now, live and in real time. And to you, I have to remind you, it's not done until God says it's done. It should have been buried, period. It's not a period, it's a comma. Which means this, this marriage seems over, comma. But I'm going to love like Jesus. This dream is dead, comma, but God is a restorer of broken dreams, so I'm going to trust in him. This illness can't be beaten, comma. But Jesus is Jehovah Rophe, the God who heals. And I don't care what the doctors say. I'm going to keep on asking and beating down the door. Because my God heals. This business is bankrupt, comma. But Jesus said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So if I have to, I'll start over. My son hasn't been home for a long time, comma. But I'm going to trust in a heavenly father that loves my son more than I ever could. And I'm going to keep praying and watching and looking for the day when he comes over the top of the hill. And I don't care what's happened in his life. I will run to him just like God the father did. I will lose all of my dignity and I will restore that boy. This addiction appears to be winning, comma. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. My daughter's been gone a long time, comma, but God knows where she is and I'm going to trust him to follow her and cover her because she was his little girl before she was ever mine. I've got no hope today, comma, but I'm going to trust a God who does buried better than anyone. I'm going to choose to believe that I've been planted, not buried. I'm going to trust in a God who puts commas where there should be periods. My dad may never give up drinking, comma. But I'm going to show him every day a Jesus that can fill that hole in your soul so you don't ever have to numb your pain again. My mom may never give her heart to Jesus, comma, but I'm going to make space at my table for her again this year because maybe this is the year when the God who does bury different than anybody is going to break through and Easter is not going to be represented by the word buried. Maybe this is the year when resurrection power infiltrates my family. Maybe this year, I will realize 
that you can't change is alive from the pit of hell, comma, and the truth is, I've been planted, not buried. And I will grow. And I don't care if God has to grow me through the cracks in the concrete of my life. I will spring forth because God is a God of resurrection, not buried. So, I know for a fact some of you are, you're fighting a, an uphill battle this week. I get it. Like I said, every single one of these scenarios, I didn't just make them up. This was my week, just walking alongside of friends here from CTK. And I've, I've prayed for them all week long. I kept hearing the song that we've been singing over the last couple of weeks in the face of the adversity and the storm and the pain and the hurt and where the devil keeps whispering to me, it's a period, not a comma. I'm just like, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, it's a comma, not a period. We've got some pausing to do in the midst of this. I kept thinking about what it feels like as, as a person who may be discouraged or feeling buried to stand up in the face of it and raise a hallelujah. I wonder what would happen if the people of God said, in a bold declaration, Satan, you can point your sword at me, but you need to know something. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So I will choose today to fight. God promised a victory. He also said, you're going to have to fight. So what if today we just linked shields together? What if we got a little scrappy and feisty? What if we refused to believe that we have no influence in our neighborhood? What if we said today, I feel like the illness is going to take me, but I'll fight one more day. What if we did it together? Would you pray with me? God, give us courage in this moment to be bold, to be strong. And no matter what may be happening around us, to embrace the beautiful thought that we've been planted, not buried. God, do a work in our heart right now as we stand in faith, as we carry out invitations to a table that's been set for all of Whatcom County, we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Thanks again for watching. We're so glad that you joined us today. Once again, we hope you'll get involved in biblical face-to-face -face community wherever you happen to be today. If you'd like more information about Christ the King Community Church, if you'd like to give online, or if you'd like to submit a prayer request or even get connected in a small group, you can find out more about us at ctk.church.